and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, July 6th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaper. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. On this week's show, we talk about the process of starting a mobile development project, the psychology of native apps versus web apps, and why we think companies should be embracing cloud computing ASAP. Please stay tuned. The Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Hello. What a day. Yeah, I've, I've just finished my 41-second lunch break. Yeah, exactly. I did the same thing. I just ate four beets out of a, a Tupperware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had some, had some leftover... This, this sounds horrible because it's not something you think of being good as a leftover, but I just had some leftover shrimp. So. Ooh. <laughs> I'm hoping it was Chinese food style or something. Szechuan. Yeah, it was Szechuan. It was it was fully cooked and and actually it was it was the stuffing out of a fajita. Oh, sh- Mexican shrimp. Yeah, uh, surprisingly good, but yeah. <laughs> I guess that works. That works for me. I could yeah. Well, there was there was some chick some chicken and steak and stuff in there too. Nice. Peppers. It's like a yeah. south of the border surf and turf. Yeah. Very nice. Well, dear listener, we are deep breathing deeply because it's been a crazy day of bizarre bug reports that we've been scrambling with. And on top of it, it's Thursday. We usually record on Wednesday, but this week was a holiday in the U.S. on Wednesday. So here we are. And uh, it just seems like a short week is just like too much stuff to do in one week. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel so behind this week. I feel like I've gotten nothing accomplished, which is not true. I have. It just feels like nothing. Yep. Yeah, I'm personally not a big fan of vacations. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it just makes it doesn't do anything yeah i either want them to be really long or not at all right yeah exactly like something you have to extensively prepare for yeah right that's about the only time it really works so well enough moaning i suppose everything's looking up that's for sure yes we've, we've gotten things sorted out and i think we're i think we're good to go now yeah Crossing, crossing fingers and knocking on wood. Right, right. Yeah, famous last words, TM. So, wow. Um, scrambling uh, with all of this stuff, sort of uh, bug hunting and short week and all that sort of thing. It makes it a little bit difficult to shift gears into podcast mode, but I do have a couple of things that have been on my mind. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. So it might be a little... Little, a little hand wavy at this point, but I think interesting. Uh, a whole bunch of transition happened around the end of last week, so we got uh, a couple of new um, green lights for some projects we've been working on, and they're both um, mobile-centric applications, and. One of them in particular we've already started working on. The other one we're still in the quoting phase, but it uh, looks like it'll be a go. And I kind of want to talk about, uh, it's, it's like, two, you know, the, it's, we're like in an NDA type of situation, so I can't be 100% transparent about it. But um, we're currently starting 
a build phase for an application that has it's like a, a Q&A platform for a particular vertical that is going to be tablet centric but also have um, web components and potentially and, and actually mobile components even in the prototype version and and it's got like it's a fairly large project and it didn't seem as big as it uh, it didn't seem initially as big as it actually is yeah it grew to a pretty good size right so so I, I sort of want to talk about the approach that we took to get where we are and then the the reasons behind you know the decisions that we've made uh, moving forward and why we made those decisions. It seems like that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that was that was kind of what I was thinking along the same lines to talk about today because some of the, some of the steps we decided to take and the changes we decided we decided on this one to do a couple of things a little bit differently than what we've done in the past in terms of developing the application. And it's I just kind of wanted to talk to touch on that too. So. So yeah, we should go through it. Right. So typically, um, for a lot of a lot of mobile projects, what we'll do is a design phase, like a paid design phase that is that can actually stretch out, uh, depending on you know the design phase involves a lot of client interaction, and sometimes it's tough to get meetings together with those people. So even if it's only I don't know, I'll just pick a number out of the air. Let's say it's sixty hours of actual work. Um, uh, it could turn into six months of calendar time because the client is busy and can't do design review uh, as quickly, you know, on, on the job, at the job of a hat. Uh, so s this particular design review, uh, this particular design phase, uh, you know, we started, geez, I'm going to, I'm going to guess three months ago. Has it been that long? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. But I think it, it's I think it's been closer to two, but anyway. Yeah, you're probably right. And so we went through and we very uh, thoroughly wireframed the the various states of the application, and the application has all sorts of um, external tie-ins, I guess I want to say. So so, but at the end of the day, we have about I think it's exactly 102 screens that we generated. In, uh, we used Mockingbird to create some very simple-looking wireframes that are navigable, and uh, you can sort of click through as each different user and get a feel for the the uh, as I call the furniture on each screen. So, uh, you know, there's four different types of user. There's admins. There's you know, it's different levels of permissions from admin all the way down to regular user, and it comes out to like 102 screens. And some of those screens will exist on an iPad application some of them will be on a companion website some of them um, potentially uh, I don't we didn't do any mobile phone screens but it can accept input from mobile phones uh, via email and uh, all of these things sort of uh, culminated in a quote for development so what we're going to do next is create a, uh, a a a working prototype that the client can then demo to potential customers Seem like a fair characterization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, so the next stage, normally, after the wireframing, that early design phase where it's just pictures, basically, non-interactive pictures, you've got, uh, we would normally do an API. You know, build the, we would define an API based on the screens because that kind of tells you everything you need to know more or less about what needs to be in that first version. 
Right, right. And we actually did the documentation for the API as part of the design phase. Oh, right. True. That's actually that's actually worth exploring a little bit. So the the back and forth was I'm sort of like uh, with these projects, I'm sort of like become the front end person and you're kind of the, the server side person. Yeah, that's the way it's turning out. Yeah. And and there's this sort of back and forth where we'll have like the client can weigh in on the wireframes, of course, because it's something visual and you know, most most everyone can kind of get their heads around that. But almost always when we have a design review for the wireframes, it we we end up having a follow-up phone call between you and I where we talk about any effect that might have on what we were planning to do for the API. Right. And it at first it starts it's a lot, but then as you get further in the design phase and the, the changes become more just refining the interface rather than changing the functionality, the the number of changes to the API kind of drops off. Right. Yeah, it's like adding a property to a model or um or is that what you call it? Is that what you call it? Like in the in the context of this, I always wonder: is it like a? It's not really a field because we're not talking about tables. It's not a column. Yeah, it's a that's a property. Yeah, yeah so, I have model attribute. Yeah, so you're basically adding an attribute to the model. Occasionally, you'll add a model, but it's like it's like a sort of ancillary to the core functionality. Um, but, you know, so the changes get less and less as time goes on. But the beauty of the approach is that you're just changing docs. You're not yeah. changing code. And there's nothing to test. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no regression testing. There's no new tests. You just change the documentation. So yeah. when you, yeah, so it's Next great. development. Super, super easy. Right. That point. Right. So that's the point we're at now. So we've got documentation for the API that's approved by the client. We've got wireframes that are approved by the client. And the, the next phase would have been to merely build the API uh, and the related tests, et cetera. Um, but to compress the schedule a little bit, we're going to work on the API and also the, a working, a functional prototype uh, in tandem because the, the timeline's a few months and, uh, you know, there's a, uh, being quick to market is important in this point, in this case. So I would actually, I would, I would say that's a little bit that diverges from our, um, our sort of generic plan. Yeah, it's it's a little bit non-standard, but the beauty of it is, is they certain you know you certainly can do them both at the same time. It's they they don't really conflict with one another. It's just a matter of resource allocation, really. Yeah. So in terms of, um, so let's talk about the API process for for. Uh, first, because you okay. sent out a really interesting update email the other day, and how would you? <laughs> Which one? I've sent so many. Yeah, no, I know it's been crazy, and, and it was a holiday. It was probably yeah. the busiest day I've had in a while. Fourth of July. Um, a couple of things we changed a couple of base principles. You know, active record. I'm thinking of, and uh, a couple of other things. So, can you describe the process? That sort of. Once the client says green light go, go ahead and start building the API. Like, what's the first batch of things you did on that first day? Oh yeah, in terms of the update. Okay, well you you kind of cut out a little bit on me there, but I think I get what you're, where you're going as far as how do we start building out the the foundations of the API and, and begin that process. And what I did first, um, because the first thing of course was to set up the development and test servers so that we had uh, you know stable stable environments to to build it in and test it on. And then I went in, I kind of kind of loosely 
for the most part, I structure everything the same on each API we build as far as uh, setting up file structures and what have you. And actually, if you want to see how that's structured, it's very similar to the way I've set up uh, set up pulp. It's just that pulp has some additional view logic thrown in that the APIs don't have. Mm, cool. And um, yeah, so yeah, I started with, um, let's see, what did I do first? First thing I did was I wrote the database migrations to get our get our database tables up and running. And this was kind of new for us because uh, we're using Active Record on this project and where in the past we've been using Data Mapper just because it's very lightweight and, and plays really nicely with Sinatra. Mm -hmm. But on this one, we wanted a little more, little more revision control and a little more flexibility in terms of doing direct queries to the data, to direct SQL queries. Yep. So we went with Active Record. Yep. And that was kind of, uh, kind of based on advice from Infinum, right? Like they, we had that discussion we talked yeah. about last week where they were challenging us on, uh, on Sinatra as a choice and why not just use rails and, and uh, Thomas Lobb's point was about database migrations, which was a great point, but it turns out that that's not necessarily specific to Rails. So we no, were able can, to... No, you can totally do it in Sinatra. Yeah, so we we're excited about that. Yeah, yeah, and actually actually, there's a there's a Sinatra gem, too, that you can install that will let you... Uh, the, uh, that will um, add the rake tasks and, and what have you. Yeah, put that so, in the show notes. So, yeah, we set up with Active Record with Sinatra... And I started by writing the database migrations, and then after that, I went through and I defined, uh, you know, defined all of my, all the model files themselves. I did the relationships and some basic validations, mm -hmm. and we're going to need to do um, more validations later on. But just a just a basic set to get us started in terms of uh, what's required and what isn't. I didn't do any types of, of validating of formats yet, mm -hmm. and then from there. I kind of, this isn't really necessary, I kind of jumped, I didn't really jump the gun on it, but I, I like to have it beforehand in place just so, just so we kind of don't lose track of where we're going and everything. I created the, all the routes files that I include in the Sinatra application that lists out each, each resource and each endpoint in the application. So all of the calls that we're going to be making right now are in there. They may not do anything yet, but they're all there. Right. So then you just kind of go in and fill in the blanks. Yep. And yeah. then I did the same thing as far as setting up tests for those for those models as far as, so they're all there all the test files are there so we just go back and and add to them as we go through the development process and that's where i'm at right now hmm. awesome so we should mention that this is all happening on uh, aws amazon web services um and this is we're using how did you structure that on uh AWS. You've got on the a, server? Yeah, well, <clears throat> whatever they are. Uh, on the web server, we've got a we've got an EC2 instance set up that's running, uh, I think it's running Ubuntu, and then I've got a just a very minimalist Nginx proxying to to Ruby, and then I'm just running the Sinatra application uh, through that way with uh, with Passenger, Fusion, pa Fusion Passenger, mm -hmm. and is proxying through Nginx to Ruby. Cool. And that's about all we have on the on the web server, and then we've got an an RDS instance for a database, and then we just connect to it from the EC2 instance. So in this case, we have the database and the the web server totally separate. Yep. Which we haven't done a lot of before, but I feel like we need to something we we're gonna move in that direction definitely. Yeah, there are a lot of advantages. It's it, you know, like you said, we don't have a ton of experience with it, but there uh, or, or any production experience. 
but there appear to be some significant benefits of using RDS. You could you could just install MySQL directly on the EC2 instance, and we've done that in the past. But uh, RDS has all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of benefits that are just hard to ignore. Yeah, the automated backups and the fact that you can deploy to multiple availability zones with just like the click of a button. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so in in fact, to just reinforce that point, the to complicate matters with our sort of bug issues that we've been dealing with the last couple of days, there was an AWS outage on Friday that um, could have potentially contributed to the issues that we had today. I don't think it did, but um, it it made it that much. It was one more thing to consider. And if we had been deployed across multiple availability zones, it would have been like a non-issue. Yeah. So, um, very excited about getting getting up and running with RDS and getting some real-world experience with that and having, you know, I'll just feel a lot better when we don't have to worry about backups that are just happening. Yeah, yeah. This, and the setup on that was, was very easy and very nice. I'd used it a few weeks ago in a, a project I was working on, but I hadn't done anything as far as setting up the RDS instance. I, I just didn't have access to that type of stuff right. within the scope of that project. And so the, the setup on that was just like super simple. Mm, cool. Very cool. So uh, how, how much, it didn't seem like it took you very long to do, like what you just described was a lot of stuff, but I mean, I, I think it took you a day, right? Like how long do you think? That yeah, took? including setting up the server environment from scratch, which we have, we have an AMI, but it has, that we use, that we've used in the past for projects, but it has a lot of things on there that we didn't need for this. Right. So I wanted to just, to just build up the instance just from scratch. And including the time I spent doing that, I think I've spent like five or six hours at this point. So. Yeah, not bad. Back in the day, you would be on the phone with Dell for that long. <laughs> I, I was on the phone with the phone company for that long on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, that is... That's another thing that's really complicated our week. Yeah, you, it's tough to do uh, cloud computing and remote development when you have no internet connection. Yeah, the only thing I could do reliably do was search for a domain name. Yeah, on a failure via SMS. Yeah, and tweet. I could tweet by SMS. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, coding by SMS is tricky. Yeah. And debugging is worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, running the running the unit tests. There's a Kickstarter project we should do. SMS IDE. Uh, yeah. For web development. Just um, you know, you run into some some line length issues. <laughs> yeah. Coffee script, I think, to the rescue there. So <laughs> Yeah. So. Yeah, we'll use some maybe we could you know, do it in white space with the or the, the semicolon language. Yeah. Semicolon. Yeah, those will be shown out links. Pretty funny. Yeah, that was significant. That semicolons. was in a response to the debate about automatic semicolon insertion in JavaScript. Which is a whole other barrel of monkeys. Yeah. Indenting with semicolons instead of spaces. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny anyway and there's the uh i won't mention the other one if we want to we want to keep our our safe for 13 and younger <laughs> yeah the brain f language yes but we can of course link to those things for you so that was a very that was it it was great when i got the update from you about all of that setup because it it uh 
it just really resonates with me like as a stable foundation it's kind of a culmination of a lot of the experimentation we've been doing and the testing and and internal projects we've been doing in the last you know few months at least six months or so and uh i don't know it just seems like uh to validate so far i feel like it's validating our approach yeah i agree it all i'm very satisfied with it it all came in came into place really well and we were able to just get that very stable i feel i feel very stable and very efficient sort of foundation squared away there in like you said just like a day Mm -hmm. yeah really quick one thing that was new to me another new thing that uh, might be new to the listener is that um, we finally located and used uh, the IAM or IAM portion of AWS to allow multiple admin users to access the uh, the console Yes, uh, I had not done that in the past, so it was a lot of you know. Uh, Kelly would say, "I have you know, I could you set I don't know. Can you? What would be an example? Like I I need a test instance, or you know, can yeah. you open a port? Or, yeah, I don't yeah, know how yeah. many times I've asked you to open ports yeah, because ports I'd be testing things and need to connect directly. Right, ports is a big one, and so now you know my the I you can I can set up. I I feel like this is a kind of a new thing because I've looked for it before and I never found it. Yeah, it seems like we were searching for it once before. Yeah, because it, when when we were, you know, I have to keep on. I would have to keep on working. I don't like that. Um, so we. So anyway, there's this I <laughs> I A M thing uh, that I don't know what it stands for. It's something account management that allows you to set up, uh, you know, logins for other people to get into your um, web serve Amazon Web Services console and give them, you know. You can grant them different permissions uh, based on what you want to allow them to do. And I think even the, the most maximum permission doesn't allow them to do everything. Like you can't see, I don't think you could see my billing or stuff yeah, like, like that. But I, I can't steal your credit card. I tried. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I'm like hesitating to go into a tangential story about traveling to the UK and have my, my credit card shut off by the company because I had made too many charges. Uh, we'll save that for another day. But anyway, yeah. there wouldn't have been anything for you to steal is my point. Um, but um, it's great. Like like Amazon is is pwning the space as far as I'm concerned. They're, every time we feel like we need something, it's already there. Uh, it's And it's pretty easy. It's totally great. Uh, Google, Google I.O. this week announced that they're starting a Google Compute platform, which is... It seems very, you know, it might end up being great. It's clearly an Amazon Web Services competitor, but I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole for at least six months um, just because it doesn't seem baked yet. Uh, obviously, they've got the capabilities and the, and the knowledge and infrastructure to support this exact kind of thing, but uh, Amazon's been doing it for so long, and it's, it's so, God, it just seems so perfect you know yeah amazon's platform is very mature at this point i feel like exactly and i think google certainly has the capacity to create a serious serious competitor there but it's it's too new and it just doesn't feel like it's there yet it's still still feels kind of experimental to me exactly i don't i don't it's too soon to say what their level of commitment is to it i mean i don't not i'm not saying that it would go away or um by surprise but it is questionable how quickly it will they'll iterate on it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of areas of my life where Google kind of owns a little little piece of my soul. But <laughs> <laughs> I feel like at this point I can say what bits and pieces that I do on the internet that Google doesn't own, Amazon probably does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then for that fractional portion, and I'm the same way. And for there's a fractional portion after that that Apple owns, but it's mostly a hardware portion. Yeah. So wow. All right. So that was so that's the that's the prepper preparatory. That's the preparation H we've been doing on the uh, <laughs> on the API side for this next phase of this particular project. And then on the the front end side of things. Um, like I said, in the wireframes, there are over a hundred screens that we've defined. Some of them will probably collapse. Some of them are probably duplicative. You know, like different states of essentially the same screen. But we do have. Um, it's a fairly complex application with four different user types, and each one gets a subtly different experience. Uh, but those experiences are going to, like I, I think I mentioned, are going to be spread across um, a dedicated. Uh, app running on an iPad and administration interface, a public website, a companion website, and and potentially mobile phone interactions as well. So we are going with an approach that is largely HTML, CSS, and JavaScript based or open web standards based, even though large chunks of it will be a native app. And we're going to create the native app portions using a PhoneGap slash Apache Cordova style wrapper around the HTML stuff. And I am a huge advocate for this. Uh, but that said, I realized that uh, an HTML-based approach for a native application is not a silver bullet, and it's not the solution in every case. I just think that this particular application is one of those cases uh, because it's largely, you know, it's largely, um, you know, a content heavy interface with standard forms and buttons and it's not doing anything like uh, oh I don't know it's not doing any full screen radical graphics intensive graphics or anything the one thing that it does need access to though is the camera so on screen on you know the the subset of screens that need access to the camera uh, we'll be using the, the phone gap API to talk directly to the camera and I think if if people have sort of followed our conversations in the past or followed me on Twitter or something, I'm always talking about, um, you know, native versus web and and the continuum between those two things. I don't really see it as a black or white distinction. If you have like a native mobile app, it probably has a bunch of HTML screens in it. Uh, or if you have a a uh, uh, a like a hybrid phone gap style native app, it's really just a question of how much HTML you're putting in your application. Are you just using it for content presentation? Or are you using it for actual user interface? These sorts of things. And there are trade-offs, of course, as there are with everything. Um, and the, the thing about this app that's different is that I normally wouldn't consider building an app that has this many screens with HTML because, of, because it's difficult to manage memory and resources with uh, that kind of an approach. So I have concerns that there will be things like launch, slow launch times uh, or crashing just because of, or, or slow performance because of the, the large number of screens. So it will be very interesting over time to, um, 
kind of solve those problems, which I, uh, which that's the big thing. That's the big point, which is that I believe that those, those problems for this particular app are inherently solvable and less work than it would be to develop screens, um, uh, for the native app, native iPad app in objective C and deal with, um, all of that rigmarole when this is a, an app for a vertical, it's probably going to get reskinned. It's going to get branded. It might be white labeled. It might turn into a website. There, there are all of these things. It's inherently at, at its root. It's a social application. And as far as I'm concerned, social equals web and native app equals not social as much as people, <laughs> as much as people want to, um, pretend that doesn't exist, uh, the way, just links links don't open native apps and that means that sharing is difficult so i sort of made the executive decision that the best um the best approach is to build this as much as possible like a web app and uh, and just add in some core functionality that uh, uh for the camera that can be added with something like phone gap yeah, you you bring up kind of an interesting point there too, uh, which sort of is is the vertical that's being targeted, and it's actually from a marketing standpoint. Um, there's there's a lot of this. I mean, to be honest, if it weren't for the the camera integration, on, I guess maybe even if if it were in some instances, mm. the whole thing the whole thing could be a website. But again, you also I think from a marketing standpoint, if you're going to go out to these sort of enterprise companies and try to sell a solution, I think having having that sort of deliverable software package that you can then market to them is maybe a little more appealing than, oh, you'll pay us thousands of dollars and we'll let you use our website. Exactly. Isn't that funny? It's totally psychological. Yeah. In fact, it's much more complicated and worse to do what we're going to do, which is... Um, and which, we're, which is, we're getting some pretty bad storms here, so yeah, I can kind of hear. If you that. get noise in the background, it's thunder, and if I get disconnected, right, means I lost power. <laughs> you lose internet? Me lose internet? No, that'll never happen. <laughs> Forty-eight times in the past two weeks. Yeah. So okay, well, thanks for the warning. Um, but it is interesting what you're saying—that sort of psychology of of um. A, a website somehow seems cheaper, right? It's yeah. Like, it's less special or something. It's very, it's, I, I recognize that it exists, but at the same time as a developer, it's completely arbitrary. And we have, we actually have this exact same thing with, with other client issues. Like uh, the, the CD product that we're working on is, it's completely uh, not a hundred percent, but it's almost completely about the psychology of handing a physical product to someone when it could almost one hundred percent be a website. And it's like uh, so. So here's so here, this is why I say it's a worse experience to create a native app. It's worse for the client. It's worse for the. It's worse for our client, and it's worse for the ultimate client, our client's client, because if. It would, it would be easier for us in this particular case. This is not true for all apps. But in this particular case, it would be easier to create this as a website that they could use on whatever hardware they want. And we could supply that hardware or they could supply the hardware. They could. It would be almost completely interoperable on, on any 
even reasonably modern platform, right? It wouldn't right. be any more work for us. But it is going to be more work for us to uh, create, and, and even, you know, you didn't hear it from me, but in a new version of a, uh, a, a very popular mobile operating system. No, actually, this, <laughs> this is public information, actually. In, uh, in iOS 6, the, um, there will be camera access so in a browser. So you, so you can actually launch the camera application from a web page uh, in iOS 6, which is coming in like October, September, October. So by the time this releases, we wouldn't even need a native app at all. Right, because they're they're targeting almost exclusively iPad. Yeah, for all of the recording screens. So uh, or image capture screens. So if you so right, but there's the psychological issue of like here's an app that you pay to use and they download it or they get it, whatever the deployment method is, we haven't yet to be determined, but once as soon as you as soon as you as soon as you introduce that native application into uh, the iOS world, you have to deal with Apple's terms of service. And if you want to make any kind of um, subscription sales inside of that or any kind of e-commerce, anything like that, you need to suddenly be reading a 100-page legal document from Apple to find out if, if they're going to take a cut and if so, how much number one and number two what the content restrictions potentially are number three whether or not uh, you're going to have to go through an approval process or if you're going to be able to deploy this to your devices internal devices manually it becomes this gigantic legal exercise that is relatively new no one's an expert on and it, you know there are probably a handful of people who are experts on it and i'm sure they're not cheap <laughs> so it becomes like a major uh it becomes a major hurdle that adds no value whatsoever, except for the psychological benefit of being able to go to a, 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 you know, an end client, so the sell-through client, and say, here's a native application. Like, I don't know. I, you know what I mean? There's like no benefit. Yeah, it's, it's like what we talked about a few weeks ago. It's sort of, it introduces a sense of ownership, I think. You know what it reminds me of? It's like, it's, Back when people, when, when enterprises would insist on hosting their own mail servers mm. or their own database servers. And this, of course, still exists, but I think that that trend is over, clearly over. But there was a time when uh, in, let's, I guess it was the early 2000s when I was doing client server software and and there were two options. You could buy the server, server software and host it on the server in your small business, small to medium business, or you could rent a server with a, a sort of uh, uh, a provider, you know, a very customized provider. And no one, no one opted very, very, few, I'm talking like 5% of my clients. I bet you it wasn't even 5% of my clients. In fact, I can think of one that actually used a shared hosting provider for their database hmm. Uh, back when I was doing FileMaker, they would people just did not do it. They wanted to feel like that server was in the closet in their office, and there was no appreciable performance difference. They just it was completely psychological, and not and and worse from any practical measure, because. 
without exception, these people were paying me to administer that server, which was, and you know, I'm not cheap. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was much cheaper to pay a hosting company to host their FileMaker server because those people were experts at it. They had everything configured perfectly. They were way better at it than I was and cheaper. So there was a smidge of network latency, which I think was immaterial, but it did exist and it was, um, it was noticeable, but I don't think it was deal breaker. It was not a deal breaker. Yeah. And that's kind of this, it feels like a, a, an apt metaphor for what's going on now with mobile for native versus web where no argument native is going to perform faster. It's compiled code. It's, it's installed directly on the device. It's closer to the metal. It's going to be faster. The question is, is it faster enough to warrant all the other BS around it? And, uh, and if, if you could create a web app that does everything, is accessible on a Kindle Fire just as easily as a laptop, just as easily as a Chromebook, just as easily as a Windows PC, an XP desktop, why not do it? Because it gives you so much more flexibility. You don't have to deal with any gatekeepers. If the performance is up to a, a good enough point, and I am confident i'm 100 percent positive that it will be then I, you know where when like what is going to break that like psychological mm, dependency you know yeah yeah i feel like the more the more the general public starts using cloud services in general and i guess this kind of comes into play with icloud or maybe gmail and Google Docs and what have you, I feel like it's going to sort of break that that independence and that feeling that you need to have a, a sense of direct ownership over over the application. You know, I, and so I feel like it feel like it's starting to get there for the general public, but then I certainly feel like there are some verticals where, you know, especially at, at an enterprise level, where they're still going to want the you know the, the solution delivered directly to them mm. you know it, you know it's like you like you were talking about with hardware and it is it's very similar and you know there's there's still some hardware platforms out there that are that are you know sort of that way too i know you and i were talking a few weeks ago i guess uh, about uh, 911 systems and what have you right yeah it's it's frustrating to some it's frustrating to people who know what's going on behind the scenes but you know, like who, yeah, whatever. I won't beat a dead horse. <laughs> it's like, if your, if your mail server goes down, would you rather Google be working on it or like Fred in your IT department working on it? Yeah. Yeah. Google. <laughs> it's like, come on, <laughs> give me a break. You know, like the argument of like, well, what if it goes down as Amazon, you know, Amazon had a problem in one availability zone last week. Yeah, well, it goes down, but but your internal server goes. It's kind of our own fault down. for not deploying to multiple zones. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's not, and it's not that it's not that they never go down. But guess right. what? Your if you have a server farm of your own, it's going to go down too. Yeah, and you're going to be the one responsible for it. Right, like your employees are going to have to take time out of their day to fix it and figure it out. And I promise you that I would. I I mean. I would rather I just would rather have Google employees working on my mail server problems than yeah rather rather than paying someone else to come in at two o'clock in the morning yeah it's, it makes no sense it makes no sense but I you know I've seen plenty of and actually if we want to we can segue into another thing I wanted to talk about today 
I've I've actually had conversations with enterprise, you know, level clients, fast casual US food chain where you know, we recommended cloud services approach. They were deciding between, you know, making a huge purchase with HP for, uh, you know, to augment their server farm for a particular application. And we recommended against it and said, you should go with cloud services. And the savings was like, it was at least 10 X. It might be a hundred X. And yeah. they, and, and they still went with buying physical machines from a sales guy that they have a relationship with that are going to be installed in a, 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 um, you know, a server room that they already are paying rent on. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like they've already got everything going in this particular direction. So what's another million dollars for hardware? That's just yeah. And, and in three years, another million for hardware upgrades. Right. And so it's funny what's, so I'm not saying I don't recognize why people make those decisions. These are not idiots we're talking about. They're people who have a different risk to reward model than you or I do. And so, so a, what, you know, what we see as a small risk or a, uh, or really a movement of risk. I mean, you're not hosting your own servers does not remove the risk of downtime. It's still going to happen. Yeah. It's just a question of like, do you want to own the hardware? Or do you not want to own the hardware? You're going to have downtime. Sorry. Yeah. You know, it's, too it's bad. Happen. Right. Too bad. And, uh, and it doesn't matter if it's, if it's, uh, Amazon or if it's servers in, in your facility, they're going to go down. And, <clears throat> And again, I just rather have a company who's dedicated to that. It's a it's an extremely specialized skill, and I'd just really rather have um, a company whose core competency is working on that skill, working on it, and not like a sandwich company working on it. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's not a core competency. No. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, really, it like you said, it is very complicated. It's a very complex skill, and I mean, I. It's something I server management is something I barely scratched the surface of, mm. and it gets gets really complex really quick. And uh, you know, Amazon, Google, whoever they have hundreds, maybe thousands of trained staff members that that know how to deal with this. And I would just I would rather trust them to that, trust it to them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sure there's people out there you can hire to manage your own hardware, but I feel like that's gonna gonna incur more expense and. And again, too, you're just not going to have the numbers of people available. Yeah, it's a volume thing. Yeah. It's like it's like if if you're operating at a particular scale, and you know, like like for example, the the thing we're debugging that we talked about debugging earlier mm-hmm. had like 25 million database requests in the last 48 days. And that's not visits, but it's just database requests, you know, but it, you know, it's got a few million records in it, in the database. And there, it's like pretty, it's kind of big. It's not huge, but it's pretty big. And, you know, it's like, once you start to hit a scale like that, where, you know, like a, a, a dedicated server from GoDaddy is not going to cut it, <laughs> right? You know, it's not like a hobby app or just something for fun. Yeah you know, and it's mission critical to the business that's running it. I don't know. 
it just makes no sense. It makes no sense to host that yourself. It makes no sense. It's way more expensive and it's not as good. So yeah. Yeah. there, I can see some situations where you need it for, I guess for, well, this is arguable too. I can see some instances where you would, would need it for security purposes. For instance, like we were talking about with 911 systems, but there too, your security is only going to be as good as the, the the you know, least incompetent least competent employee you hire. <laughs> yeah, I like to think I like to think you're the least incompetent employee. I'm the that, least incompetent. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a compliment. <laughs> I like to think I'm the least incompetent too. <laughs> I am not the least incompetent. I'm I'm the worst at, of the two of us. You're better at forming complete sentences. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my wheelhouse. Yeah. Complete sentences is my wheelhouse. So actually, as the guy who edits the podcast, I disagree with you, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, we might be in de beating the dead horse territory here, um, and I'll just maybe close up on this section by saying, uh, who manages their own payment gateway? Nobody. Yeah. You hire that out. You hire that out. And you might have... You might have um, you might have HIPAA regulations or uh, child privacy, or, you know, and that maybe is a different can of worms. Granted, but that is not the normal case for like a an organization that we tend to deal with, which are customer facing retail organizations, advertising agencies, that kind of thing. We're just talking about moving content around and not exposing user data inadvertently. Yeah. So, not special case government stuff. So anyway, that does uh, that does sort of form a segue into another thing that happened this week uh, to me. Anyway, I don't think I, I don't think this is on your radar, but I got an RFP to do um, to do a mobile strategy engagement with an a extremely large, um, you know, big food company, uh, Fortune fifty food company. No, I I hadn't heard about this. Are you gonna gonna let me in on it or? Yeah, I mean it's not a development thing at all. It's like totally strategy. But ah. um, they uh, they you know I got like a nine or ten page Word doc because it's always a Word doc from a company like that. Uh, Word doc with like a a zillion bullet points about um, how should we do this? How should we do that? Or 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 backing up actually, what is your what, how would you characterize your ability to deal with or answer questions like X, Y, Z? And that basically went on for eight or 10 pages. And the, and it was very tactical. The questions were very tactical, like, um, how should we, uh, organize our development teams in a matrix style organization to allow them flexibility to develop in their familiar tools and languages, but make everything interoperate. And, you know, like very specific, fairly, fairly specific questions. Yeah. Were they wanting an RFP or were they wanting a list of answers? They wanted, uh, basically they wanted to say, can you answer these kind of questions? Yeah. And if so, then let's continue the conversation. Yeah. And, but the thing was that as I'm reading through it, I'm going, a lot of them were like, well, I have an opinion about this and I can give you an answer. I know what you should do. 
right? Like, like the question is, can you answer this question? And I'm like, yeah, I can, but you're not going to listen to the answer. Yeah. So does that mean I've answered it? You know, cause like, because the whole thing is like, the whole thing was in absence of a mobile strategy or a future friendly strategy, it, unless they just left it out of the document. Maybe there is an awesome future friendly multi-device zombie apocalypse plan for this company. They didn't mention it. That they didn't mention. Uh, and But it, it really felt more like that didn't exist and that they were jumping straight to – and they were they were looking at problems that were like fires that were currently on their pants. And they're like, can you put these fires out on my pants? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, I can put that fire out, but, you know, you're still standing too close to the furnace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, are you ready to move away from the furnace? Because that's really the issue. And uh, – I don't know if this, I don't know if I really want to, I don't know if this is a podcast discussion, but I'll kind of summarize by saying that, um, I'm, I'm, it's a, it would be a great gig and it's a huge company. It would look great on the website to say, you know, like the, yeah, it would be a great logo to add to the website, but f by all indications, they are not ready to hear the answers to these questions. And it, it's it's similar to the thing about cloud computing versus, uh, you know, investing $10 million in a server farm. Because I, I almost want to start off by saying, look, the, the, the shift from having access to the web at a particular place, you know, your, your, office, your home office, your kitchen table, to your pocket, which is with you in the car, in Target, in the mall, at the doctor. This is a drastic, major, huge, overwhelming, disruptive, business-changing, society-changing shift. And when somebody asks a question as specific as, what IDE should we use for a matrix organization that's trying to, you know, it's like, it's like, wait a second. Yeah. You've got way bigger problems than that. Yeah. That's, that's picking nits and, and not addressing the, the larger issue. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like they need to be, companies need to be undergoing a fundamental shift and, and if they are not, and it's a big problem and it's really hard. And I feel for people who are in that position but I'm getting a lot of, I've worked with maybe a dozen Fortune 2000 companies in the last year. And with with one exception, all of them have a head in the sand type approach mm -hmm. where they're they're looking to say, oh, we just want to get an app in the app store. The CMO said we had to have an app in the app store. And and they're like asking questions about how do they do that the cheapest, cheapest, best way. Yeah. And... You know, you can answer that question, but that's like, here's a fish. I'd rather teach them how to fish. And if if companies, the companies that don't realize how big a deal this is are opening themselves up to disruption by companies who are much smaller and, and normally would have no business or chance uh, disrupting like a Procter & Gamble, let's say. It shouldn't be possible. But all of these, all of these, uh, Older organizations are their infrastructure, their IT infrastructure is predicated on a desktop notion of, um, of software development, and I am here to tell you that that is over. And 
are dying at least, it will be over, that everybody's going to be on mobile devices and not just the stupid iPhone 4S. You think that's cool? It's going to be Google Glass. It's going to be voice activated. It's going to be talking to your TV. It's going to be talking to your car. It's going to be waving your hands around in the air and getting feedback and interacting with systems. It's going to be oodles and oodles and oodles of thin clients talking to sophisticated back-end web services. And, you know, you can spend money all day long, but you're not going to build a server farm big enough to support that, especially if it's not your core business. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it's the same, kind of the same argument we've we've ranted about before as far as, you know, even even just a web page is, is no longer just a web page. You know, just, just building HTML is, is not the answer. So yeah. it's, it's just a, a larger extension of that, kind of, kind of going back even further. Totally. I mean, like the, right now, mobile is the wedge that is that is opening people's eyes to this because they're like, well, we already have a website and now we need it to look good on mobile. So now we need two websites. That sounds like a lot of work. And it is a lot of work. And there are all sorts of, you know, there are all sorts of bad things about having two websites that are essentially providing the same information. Uh, SEO, not the least of which. Uh, never mind the amount of work involved. So if you have, so if you multiply that by a few more um, devices, uh, for example, Kindle Fire, for example, the Nexus Seven, which was just announced at Google I/O, for example, uh, smart TVs, Android on a stick, the dashboard in your car, uh, your kid's toy, yeah, yes, sportswear. Um, you know, the, there's the more and more of these these kind of like wearable, interfaceless devices. Uh, like uh, the Nike Fuel Band that, you know, it's like these all need to tie into the same services. Yeah, I, I saw one the other day that actually I don't know if it's out yet or if it was just a prototype. It's a, a blood glucose monitor. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so th like these things, what, what did I just get the other day? I ordered something the other day that was like bizarrely internet connected. I mean, the fact that cameras exist that aren't internet connected boggles my mind. That should be the <laughs> that should be the first feature that Canon is putting in every goddamn camera. Yeah, it should connect to the internet. That's the first number one thing that they should be doing. Yeah, because everyone wants to upload photos. What do you, yeah? What What are you going to do? Print them out? <laughs> you know what I mean? You get home and you transfer them to your computer and then you upload them. Give me a break. Why? This is this is why everyone uses the camera on their iPhone. Exactly. It's not because the it's not because an SLR is heavy. It's because the images are trapped. And anyway, I'm I'm starting to yell. I'm like giving all jazzed. <laughs> no, I, I I agree completely. I have a Canon camera. It takes much better quality photos. I never use it. Yeah, Erica's got a Leica. It is jaw dropping. The photos that thing takes, depth of field, the color clarity. It's gorgeous. Does she use it? No. Why? Because she doesn't have it on her. Because it doesn't connect to Facebook. Because why, why would she carry it around if it doesn't connect to Facebook? Do you know what I mean? Well, I could rant about Facebook. Yeah, or whatever. I get the point. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. So, I mean, come on, people. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm, I've been actually, um, I've been sort of seething under the surface about this RFP because I kind of want to like reach through the Word document and shake the person who wrote it and be like, like, please tell me that you have a strategy before you're asking these questions. Cause I know they don't, <laughs> I know they don't. And I know they're not ready to hear the answers I'm going to give them, which are like, we can solve all these problems, but that's band-aids on top of band-aids on top of band-aids. And sometimes that's, there's a value in that because it's a question of getting from point A to point B or, you know, fixing yeah. the plane in flight. I get it. Yeah. Like uh, we're, we're kind of dealing with that somewhat with the, 
the the bugs we were sorting out today and, right. and what have you. I mean, they're they're moving toward toward a cloud based platform for everything, but in the meantime, we do have to sort of band aid here and there. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. I definitely get it. And I'm I am going to have a phone call with the people to kind of like clarify if these questions are being asked in the context of a larger strategy. And if they're not, I'm just going to walk away because there's nothing I can do. Like I've done at least a dozen of these engagements in the last year with big, big, like everyday, like household name brands. And without exception, what happens is you go in, you've got, um, you know, go there for like two days, you go in, there's like department heads from, from, two, three, four, maybe as many as six different departments. Some of them have never met. And, and they're all, there's like turf wars going on there, which makes sense because they're incentivized to compete with each other financially, which is a problem. And, and yet now I'm standing in front of them saying, okay, all of our systems need to interoperate. Everybody has to expose their data as APIs. It needs to be clean data that is not polluted with layout information. It needs to be uh, real time, your customers, whether they're employees or, or end users, need to be able to access everything on anything, anytime they want, not nightly batch scripts that transfer an FTP, you know, FTP a file from this system to that system. And, you know, none of that BS. It's got to be real time, all the time, on anything from anywhere. And that's a fundamental infrastructure change for these businesses. Mm. And when they're reluctant to use something like Amazon, that is like a seven to eight to nine figure, you know, bottom line purchase that they have to make. So they're like, well, we don't want to do web services. So, and we don't, you know, we want to support this, but we don't want to do web services. So it's going to cost us $50 million to buy the computers to do it. Why? Yeah. Right. You know, so it's like, so I'm just, I just want to, I just half the time in these meetings, I just want to stand up and be like, you guys are all screwed. So I'm just going to leave. Here's my invoice. <laughs> you know, I I understand that it's hard and I understand that it's a multi-phase process, but until, until the shift, the mental shift happens that something big is happening, no one's going to make the right decisions. It's kind of like, remember when we remember, I mean, you're, you're, you're a spring chicken, but you're old enough to remember, um, dial phones, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I'm like in my forties. So I, I remember before we had a TV and, but, but phones, speaking specifically about phones, it used to be when you called someone, you didn't call someone, you called somebody's kitchen, right? Yeah. And they were either there or they weren't. And the right. phone either like rang lonely in an empty house and there was no answering machine. It just rang and then nothing yeah, my, happened. My house is still like that. For real? For real. Yeah. No answering machine, no voicemail. Oh my God, that's heaven. We're we're just we're just antisocial. But you have a you have a landline. Yeah. Yeah. So think of the significance of the shift. Think of your if you can think back, dear listener, if you can think back to your life before there were cell phones, when you were essentially once you were in the car, let's say, you were completely disconnected until you could find a payphone. So you're late for something, and then you have that like that was it was the worst. I can remember being in college for God's sake. And in a snowstorm, supposed to be driving to Thanksgiving, and you know, like I'm, I left late. Now there's a snowstorm, and now I'm even later. Everyone's sitting around the table, probably. Do I? And the calculus in my mind was: 
do I spend another 45 minutes trying to get off the highway in a snowstorm to maybe find a payphone to call, or do I just keep going and and bear the shame when I walk through the door? Right, right. And it, it's funny because actually cell phones, it was kind, kind of a... Uh, a big life changer for us when I was a kid growing up getting getting the first cell phone because um, uh, my mother had a lot of medical issues and so my dad ran his own business so he could take time off of work and and take care of her and what have you when she needed it and so that being able to finally get a cell phone gave him a lot more freedom to be able to do his his job and support the family while still being able to you know for her to be in contact with him Mm. you know when when she needed things mm. it's it's a it's not an understatement or it's not an overstatement to say that it's life altering yeah to be able to be in communication with another person from anywhere virtually anywhere is life altering empowerment yeah and that is and 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 that was phones now we have computers that are the same way now we have computers in our pocket and that is a life altering business changing totally disruptive force that is going to leave no aspect of society untouched yeah it is it is it's and it's not even really fair anymore to call a cell phone a phone because it's so much more than that yeah you can you can make calls over a cellular 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 network see see what i mean about sentences that's easy for you to say but it's it's so much more than that yeah yeah i mean it's the power of the internet in your pocket and uh you know so anyway i'm i like I said, I'm going to start yelling. I'm going to take a breath. It's like, it's just frustrating. Um, yeah. I, I always want these big companies to move faster or at least realize what they have to do faster. And then you get questions like, mm, is iOS or Android going to win? Ugh. And you, you just like, uh, neither, but you're going to lose because some company you've never even heard of is going to eat your lunch because you're asking the wrong questions. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's... It's it's been one of those weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fortunately, we are in a nice position with the companies we're currently working with because they they I think across the board realize the significance of the change. But that said, they're not huge companies. Yeah. The development projects that we're working on, you know, I mean, I think the largest the largest one has, you know, approaching a thousand employees. And when you look at someone like, you know, Johnson and Johnson. You're talking about hundreds of thousands and they've got, you know, process and all, you know, departments and incentives and it's, uh, things move more slowly. Yeah. So, wow. All right. I think we're, I think that might be a good point to wrap it. What do you think? Uh, yeah, probably. I think anything else just gets into angry rants, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm happy to do. <laughs> yeah. I noticed. I know I'm in a mood. I'm sorry. It's, yeah, no, it's okay. Part of me is like, I want to do over on this week, this whole week. And then another part of me goes, Oh no, not that again. Right. No, we're making progress. It's good. Yeah. yeah it's, it's good. good. If I can stay connected to the internet. That helps. I'm going to, yeah. I mean, can you get, do you have 3g there? You do, right? Uh, I do. But actually, like I said, again, this goes back to being a, being a dinosaur in some aspects. Um, the cell phone that I have, is, you know, I, I have it and take it out when we're going on car trips and what have you, but for the most part, I just use it for de- testing, oh, as wow. far as testing devices and or testing software and websites. And so the data plan I, I have on it is, 
Uh, it's very limited because I'm usually using it over the, the Wi-Fi network at home. Oh, right. So I, I run out of data in like a, like a day. I think I have a 30-meg data plan. Oof. Yeah, Which... it's a it's a prepaid cell. So. Oh, okay. So so since you mentioned mags and I, I earlier mentioned traveling, I'm going to give you one last okay. one last rant. Did I did I tell you last week about the when I went to London and I downloaded the PDF? Uh, no, you didn't. I don't think I mentioned it. So, so I went to London last week for client meetings, and I my travel information was in it was sent to me by a travel agent in a PDF, which when I landed in London I downloaded. And I don't ask me why, but it was like 25 megs. The, the size of the PDF was 25 megs. It cost me $500. You're kidding. No. No. It was no. a little bit over $500. Are you going to get a bill your travel agent for sending you such a huge file? <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, eight to AT&T's credit, they let you retroactively set up an international data plan, which in, in all honesty, I thought I had activated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was only $30, but it was still a $30 PDF download. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. Actually, after the outages the last couple of weeks, I have changed my cell phone plan. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, but I, I don't think it I don't think it takes effect for another week or so because it, I just set it to, re, you know, when the plan renews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for a while, I actually have a router in my house. Well, we can talk about this later. But I have a router in my house you can plug a a, 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 a Wi-Fi stick into so that all of your normal computers will still continue to connect to the router via Wi-Fi, and then your stick connects to the Internet over 3G. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'll send you a link. Yeah. Of course, you have to have a data plan, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you have to share a 3G connection with every computer in the house. It's not as bad as you'd think. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I know you're a bit torning, um, you know, season one of Lost all the time or whatever, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, let's, let's kill it there. Let's, uh, we, got, <laughs> we should wrap up, get back to our bug chasing. Yeah. All right, so that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaper. Hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. See you later. Bye-bye.